Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So today we welcome back to the show my colleague, Ray Lehman, who is the director of finance, insurance, and trade at R Street. So that's FIT. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. I always want to say, I always want to call it finance, agriculture, and trade, but I... (laughs) Agriculture, yeah, agriculture lives underneath insurance in our in our structure. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, really appropriate for its role in the economy, but it is for its role in our research. Right. Yeah. I just i I assume, although uh, our boss uh, Eli Lair, he is while he is given to uh, coming up with funny ne- acronyms, I don't yeah. think we would actually name a center the Fat Center. You know, <laughs> fit is a lot better, you know, it is. And it means yeah. my newsletter can be called Fitbits. We so we, uh, you, of course, deal with insurance. And so we want mm-hmm. to talk about a number of different insurance yeah. issues that are arising with the recent pandemic. So there's a few. Yeah, there's more than a few. So let's start with this. So yeah. and this seems like it happened kind of a million years ago mm-hmm. now, but uh, there was a little bit of a controversy recently uh, regarding business interruption insurance. Yeah. Yes. And the president said that, you know, uh, insurers should pay out for business interruption because of the pandemic or whatever. Uh-huh. So maybe we should just start with what is business interruption insurance? So typically when uh, a business has a commercial multi-peril policy, uh, so that that's going to cover their their operations and their property for all sorts of perils. It is it doesn't typically co- cover your liability. That's a separate policy. But your multi-peril policy is mostly a property policy. Uh, it will include a business income replacement uh, coverage, so that if your your storefront burns down, there's a hurricane, and your roof flies off, and you can't open you get uh, a certain amount of days included in, in your standard policy when you are shut down uh, that your revenue is replaced. That's, that's broadly speaking what business interruption is. Okay, great. So I guess, so all the businesses that are shut down now, <laughs> they could just, uh, I, I mean, assuming that they have these policies, which as good, sensible, uh, responsible business owners mm-hmm. I assume do, Right, uh, they could just invoke their policies, and the insurance companies will uh, pay, the pay them what their revenue would be, and it's prob- problem solved, right? Yeah, not quite. Uh, so, business interrupt. First of all, only about a third of businesses have business interruption policies, um, but it is specifically in the policy that it only covers a physical loss. So, where this comes up most commonly is say you had a hurricane and power gets knocked out to an entire neighborhood. Unless your property is one of the properties that actually suffered damage, you don't get business interruption insurance just because you don't have power. Um, so that is one of several issues that are involved in the coverage disputes that have come up recently, which is, is the pandemic a physical loss? There are arguments that it can be uh, under certain circumstances. It could be a contamination. 
uh, of your premises if uh, you actually have virus on surfaces. The problem with that argument, though, is if that's the finding, that that's a, a physical loss, then you only are entitled to business interruption until that loss is remediated. So if you go in with some Windex and you clean all the surfaces, that's the end of the interruption. Making this even more complicated, ever since SARS in the early 2000s, most policies also additionally have an explicit exclusion for any virus or bacteria, um, that they do not cover loss related to virus or bacteria. So that, if you have that exclusion, which most most standard policies do, that kind of ends the subject, right? There's no there's no coverage that could uh, be found in the uh, in policies that don't have an explicit exclusion. There's going to be lawsuits. There already have been many lawsuits um, claiming coverage. There probably will be some courts that find coverage, and there are policies that are not standard, uh, especially policies written in the Lloyd's London market that are specific to a particular business, have unique contract language. Often that language has not been tested in the courts. And so I expect there's going to be some cases where coverage is found. The The particular details about even the exclusion could uh, not necessarily hold up, but the response will be immediately after this crisis, insurers will come back and rewrite their contracts to make it more clear, as they did back in the SARS days, that this is not something they want to insure. And the reason they don't want to insure this is that it is the ultimate in correlated risk, which is a difficult, for those who don't follow insurance, it it may be difficult to understand this, but the way insurance works is you have to diversify risks in order to be able to insure them. you could, if you're a reinsurer, that's an insurer for an insurance company, you could insure an earthquake in uh, Japan. You could insure a hurricane in Florida. You could insure wildfire in Australia. And it is unlikely that all of those things will happen at the same time. But in a pandemic... You made God very angry. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> in a pandemic, the whole world is shutting down at once all the sectors, all the geographies. In addition, the assets that an insurance company holds to back its promises are investments, bonds, um, some securities. Those are all going down in value. So there is no way to get to diversify yourself away from this risk. It's just too correlated. The The only player, the only actor who could really respond here are our governments. Right. So it's, it's sort of like uh, giant asteroid insurance. Yeah. <laughs> but even that is like, uh, in, in the case of a giant asteroid, you don't tend to worry so much about the kinds of claims where no one's going to be around. Well, that's <laughs> afterwards. True. No one can file a claim. And then, yeah. Right. No one's going to be there to file the claim. No one's going to be there to pay the claim. Then that's not something you have to worry about so much. But uh, a pandemic, you do. Yeah. So... I, I sense that Doug has a question, but before that, I, I did have kind of a, a little bit of an off-the-wall thing, because you mentioned yeah. Lloyd's of London. Yeah. And it, my impression has always been that Lloyd's of London has tended to be a little bit 
uh, quirkier in mm-hmm. some of the policies that it is sure. offers. You know, yeah. like your, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like, um, you know, supermodels getting uh, yeah. policies on their legs or you know, yep. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, is there is there a particular reason for that? Is that just, you know? Yeah, Lloyd's of London, to, to first understand, is not actually an insurance company. It's a market. Uh, it's kind of like, imagine a... a a, a, a stock market for insurance. So there are underwriters there. They're called names um, who are interested in writing risks. Um, and then there are brokers who are interested in placing risks. And they negotiate amongst themselves for, um, you know, unique, hard to insure risks that are basically bets. They're gambles uh, that you're you want to put a little bit of capital at, at risk, uh, taking on some of these bets. Um, each is underwritten by a syndicate of, of underwriters. Um, it, it has a, a, every year will have a certain class. There's a certain amount of capital you've raised, a certain amount of risks that you've undertaken. And then once that book is matured, that is to say, uh, it's run off and you've either paid your paid out your claims or or uh, you had no claims or you didn't have significant claims and you've made money. Um, that's the end of it. It is not an ongoing uh, each each syndicate is not necessarily an ongoing enterprise unto itself. There's there different underwriters will come in and out. There will be program business where, you know, each may take only a slice of a risk. You may have a hundred million dollar you know, event that you're, say, South by Southwest, a ticket to Texas, uh, which turned out didn't have events cancellation coverage. But um, if you if you had a $100 million event, Wimbledon recently got a $100 million payout because it had events cancellation coverage that covered pandemics. A bunch of Lloyd syndicates will each take a piece of that. They'll say, all right, uh, I will take the tranche from $10 million to $20 million. Uh, maybe we'll share a tranche between two syndicates between 20 million and 30 million and we'll each take 50 percent, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're complicated, unique contracts um, that really work a little bit more like gambling than like you traditionally think of insurance. Well, a moment ago, you mentioned that in a, the case of a pandemic, that really the only the government is available as a player yeah. who can be that financial backstop. And uh, I saw an R Street uh, newsletter recently that caught my eye that said R Street opposes nearly every federal program of insurance, but here's an idea for one that you actually support. And so go talk about that a little bit. Talk about sure. the idea of pandemic insurance. Right. So I think one among the things that I think are are different about this risk than say flood insurance, which is which is an area where I've I've argued for the government to get out of that business or significantly reduce how much it's in that business. In flood insurance, you have moral hazard, right? If I am, if you're not paying the actuarial value of the insurance, if you're not recognizing the full risk of flooding, then you have an incentive to ignore that risk or or to build in places where that risk is really high. Um, that's not true with a pandemic. There's really nothing that these businesses could have done to avoid this problem. The one thing they could do to avoid making a claim is to stay open, which is the opposite of what we want. We don't want, we want to remove the incentive to stay open. And 
I live in an area in the Gulf Coast of Florida where we have had essentially four years where the tourism business has been ravaged with Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Michael, and a devastating red tide that lasted from October 2017 to February 2019. They lost two full seasons because of that red tide. And now they face this. So there is incredible pressure on on the governor and on local officials not to give shutdown orders, not to give stay-at-home orders, because these people see that as, rightfully so, as a death sentence for their business. Right. We want to remove that <laughs> as, as a possibility, give them a lifeline. Um, and I think the way you can structure that is with a government-provided insurance product. Uh, I think that... It would provide a little bit, it, having it as a, a standard uh, policy would provide a little bit more certainty. You're not, as, as people are right now, waiting to see what is going to be phase three and phase four and phase five of this ad hoc response. I would know that if I'm ordered by the government to shut down, which, by the way, I see as a regulatory takings, <laughs> if I'm ordered by the government to shut down, I am entitled to some percentage of my revenue because I've been paying for that coverage. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this on a day where uh, I guess the SBA has announced that they've run out of funds yeah. for the uh, the payroll protection plan. So what would what would this you've, you've already uh, yeah. talked a little bit about it, but what would this look like as a practical matter to a business owner? What, you know, what, what might they expect if this were invoked? So I think the way you would do it um, is say you you would you would tie you're looking for a certain amount of revenue replacement. So say I, I would normally get $100,000 of revenue um, in a year, uh, a relatively small business. Um, I would pay 1% of that in premium every year. Uh, it could be less. It could be more. I'm just throwing that out there because we seem to have pandemics about once every 100 years. So 1% premium would you know, sort of match that as, as the risk. Um, I think one problem you might have is people would game this. So I wouldn't want insurance coverage unless I thought a pandemic was coming. I would wait until December of last year when I first read these reports out of China that, that there's this uh, coronavirus that is spreading like wildfire, and that's when I'd buy my policy. That's, uh, that's not ideal, <laughs> right? Game, gaming people in and out is not ideal, so I have an idea to, to deal with that. It's kind of borrowing a concept from the life insurance industry uh, where you uh, kind of accrue savings in your policy over time. So say the first year you participate in this program, you're buying 25 percent re revenue replacement, second year, 50 percent, third year, 75, fourth year, 100 um, percent. So I have an incentive to stay in it for the long term. If I drop out, I start all over again. Um, that's. That's uh, imagine that's what it would look like. Uh, it could be a parametric coverage. That means it, if there's certain parameters met, and I would imagine that would be like public health emergency is declared in your area, uh, then immediately there's a payout. So you wouldn't have to, you know, prove your income loss. There wouldn't be all of these issues about what are you using it for? Are you paying payroll? Are you paying your vendors? You would just have an immediate payout and you could use that sort of flexibly as you see fit. Um, having a, a product that you've paid for kind of makes that uh, a little bit more feasible. 
it also uh, would make it so that you could do some things that would otherwise maybe be troublesome. So if you're a church or a religious institution, a religious school, say, and you normally get a certain amount of revenue, if you bought a policy from the government in an arm's length transaction, that's not that that's not that hard. We already have that. Like government schools and, and churches buy flood insurance policies and, and we can pay those. If what we have instead is that they need to get a payment from the government without that arm's length transaction, then you potentially run into some First Amendment issues. So I, I think this clarifies that a little bit as well. Alluded to this, but the the reason for having this as an insurance product as opposed to just saying, look, at, I mean, you know, the, the government already passed the $2 trillion mm-hmm. relief bill. So, you know, if you have a major pandemic, obviously the government is going to step in and do something. Yeah. Uh, but the rationale for having it be an ahead of time insurance po- product, one, I guess, um, you're not always going to be in a situation where uh, money is really... America, at least for right now, seems to be in this weird situation where... Um, nothing yeah nothing costs anything at the moment right, right. <laughs> yeah we could we could just spend as much as we want and right. it doesn't really matter um, yeah. but that's not always the case and then i guess also the fact that there is this uh, certainty might lead people to take mitigation actions possibly uh, earlier. yeah yeah i mean if there is any that they could take um i'm i'm a little skeptical that there's very much you could do to mitigate against the pandemic um, it seems like a collective action problem that is beyond uh, the scope of any given business. I mean, you could, there well, are obviously, you know, yeah, there are obviously individual steps you can take to prevent uh, transmission to your employees and so forth. And that's why I would not want this to go into other areas. What I would fear is creation of a, a general backstop, like the terrorism insurance backstop, that would provide coverage for workers' compensation and liability and directors and officers, then those are all areas where businesses have incentives through the tort system and through the workers' comp system to take action to prevent uh, exposing third parties or their own employees to, 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 to the virus. Um, and there, there could be moral hazard. And uh, that's, that's something right now the private market is able to take on those kinds of exposures. They're going to have a lot of claims this year. Um, I, I don't see a need for, for a government response there. One, one of the things I like about this is, you know, with the recent, whatever we're going to call this, bailout, yeah. stimulus, you know, all this, I think people have struggled what, how even to think about it. I've seen people throw out the term reparations because yeah. governmental bodies are the ones that have shut down the, you know, this sort of avoids that. And it also avoids... I think what's what's more my concern is, you know, when they when the Congress passed the CARES Act, it took several days longer than people expected because there was so much politicking going on and there are, yeah. you know, bailouts for various industries. And I think this really avoids that. And like you said, sort of puts the plan in place so there's much more certainty about what the process will look like rather than a lot of horse trading after the fact. Yeah. Legislating in the middle of a crisis is never a particularly you know, a productive enterprise. Um, and that's one of the reasons, I mean, this, there are certain draft bills that have been floating on, on Capitol Hill to do some sort of government response to business interruption. Uh, I've talked to some of the offices that are 
interested in that subject, um, I don't, I, I would urge them and I, I first urge them, this is not for the current pandemic, right? Like mm-hmm. the, this is not something that you're going to get past on some, it, or it certainly isn't something you should get past on one of these phase four, phase five type bills uh, through, you know, emergency procedures. It's going to be a permanent program. It's for the future. And there should be hearing. There should be discussion. I've got ideas about what to do, but I'm sure there are things that I'm missing. <laughs> I would like to hear input from other parties who could who could tell you know who could provide some some alternatives that to show why what I'm proposing is wrong. Um, that that's the way legislating should work in in the normal order. Um, and until we could get back to that normal order, I, I would not want Congress to be messing with this. Right. Yeah, there have been some people who have been talking about uh, some sort of retroactive changes, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's uh, it's come up. I guess seven states have now introduced legislation and do something like that. Um, and there is interest in Congress as well. I mean, they're they're going to find it's you're trying to draw blood from a stone. And you're if you did anything like that, it would create a, a massive solvency problem for the industry. They did not collect premiums for this risk. They never priced it into their coverage and they don't have it. Um, so the, there's maybe $800 billion of total assets backing all U.S. property, commercial property insurance. Um, this catastrophe is, it, the, the estimate just for small businesses um, was that it would be about $400 billion a month. So um, that capital is backing every kind of risk. Like, we're still in the middle. We just had massive storms here in Georgia. Uh, we're going to be in hurricane season soon. There's going to be California wildfires. We're always in earthquake season. There is no way that you could have the industry pay this out uh, without bankrupting the entire global property casualty insurance industry. And then what do you do? I mean, the, a hurricane doesn't care that you had a pandemic. <laughs> it's not it's not going to give you a break uh, because you're in the middle of that kind of crisis. And and those are still coming. Uh, OK, so he, here's an interesting uh, thing that I believe you wrote about recently, Ray, kind of a little mm-hmm. wrinkle, which yep. is uh, because of the pandemic, people are driving a lot less. Right. Yep. Which means yep. They're getting to fewer accidents. Uh, which means that, you know, from an actuarial point of view, the, the, the premiums that have been collected are in excess of what the auto insurance companies are needing to going to be needing to make all the claims or whatnot. Correct. And so a number of companies have announced that they're going to do uh, rebates. rebates. They're going to give people back part of the money. Um, mm-hmm. because of this. And you noted that this actually uh, might be illegal for them to, for them <laughs> to do that. You're, state law i think maybe and so in in california specifically I'll, I'll 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 admit up front i was trolling slightly with that <laughs> because it's generally legal uh it is generally legal but it matters how you do it um so in california has a unique system of insurance it was created in 1988 by a ballot proposition like lots of ballot propositions in california it was a stupid idea um, that is now permanent and impossible to change uh so 
there are only a very limited number of factors you can consider in pricing auto insurance in the state of California. And uh, the two most important uh, are your driving safety record, which California interprets only to mean your DMV record. It can't, there's no other record that you could submit to consider dr uh, a driving safety record. And number two is your miles driven, your anticipated miles driven. Um, and it is actually illegal under Proposition 103 for a company to adjust its premiums based on actual miles driven unless that was agreed to prior to the initiation of the policy. So there are policies that are oh, what you would call pay per mile, um, where you only, you, you get, you, usually you would have some sort of transponder in your car that's recording how much you drive. It tells the insurance company, the insurance company may give you rebate checks and may ask for more money. Uh, if you end up driving more than was anticipated, or if you end up driving less than was anticipated. Um, so, a bunch of regulators. I mean, I would note it is interesting to me the 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 market was working here. Uh, companies had lots of premiums coming in, no claims, and so they started giving money back because it was in their interest to have good relations with their consumers. Um, the a number of regulators and consumer advocates did not like the fact <laughs> that the market was working. Right. They clearly wanted you can't have them do this voluntarily uh, because then it looks good for for the market. It ha it can only be done when an, when a regulator orders you to do it. Um, and so that's. Immediate, yeah, they wanted credit. And so immediately you start so this pushback where regulators were going to order every company to give rebates, not just the big companies that were already doing so, and they would have investigations of whether the rebates were enough. Um, so in California, the, he, the, the commissioner there, like several others, joined in the, in the fray and said he would launch these investigations and order rebates. And I was noting that, you know, technically speaking, you can't have them give rebates based on how much someone is driving. You can have them give rebates equally to everybody. Um, but like in my case, I work from home anyway. My driving has not really changed very much. <laughs> so I'm going to be getting a, I, I'm getting a rebate I don't actually deserve. Uh, I haven't changed my driving pattern at all. Uh, but that's the way it would have to work under under the California law. They couldn't they couldn't look at the difference in in how much I'm driving. Yeah. So Ray, I saw that you were that you signed on to something called the Smarter Safer Coalition, a letter to uh, Nancy Pelosi. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm I'm intrigued. So Smarter Safer has been around uh, uh, about ten years actually, or eight years I guess. Um, it's a coalition of uh, free market groups like ourselves and Taxpayers for Common Sense, National Taxpayers Union, um, as well as a number of environmental groups, uh, National Wildlife Federation, American Rivers, and a number of others, um, some insurance companies, and some other assorted uh, interests. I, I, for instance, I know the National Affordable Housing Coalition is a, is a member. Um, where we kind of, the idea was to to approach disaster issues um, sort of from a bipartisan perspective where there is government uh, incentives that actually create more risk. 
especially in the flood area, but not just in the flood area, um, we had some common grounds uh, between the right and the left. Um, and, you know, we've, it's been pretty successful. Uh, 2012 uh, was probably our biz- biggest success in passage of the Bigger Waters Flood Insurance Reform Act. Uh, so right now, the most recent letter that came out from the coalition dealt with, you know, there are, there are these proposals for uh, one, of, one of the coronavirus response bills to include some work on infrastructure. And so we, we highlighted that if you're going to be working on infrastructure, you should be considering uh, the, the relative cost savings that can come from investments in, in disaster mitigation. Um, as, as an example, there was uh, a, a, under the Obama administration, a presidential executive order um, that required all new federal projects uh, to consider uh, to abide by the, the uh, a higher flood standard, um, so that whether it's a military base or you know a, a HUD uh, you know housing units uh, to you know raise properties so that they would not be subject to repetitive loss flooding that was repealed. Uh, in another executive order in 2017, uh, but we've been, you know, seeking to, to have that reinstated because we think it is it is an efficient, uh, a more efficient use of taxpayer funds. As at the same time that it's, you know, acknowledging the realities that climate change and and just regular natural disasters mean that we have to take into account uh, the way flooding and other disasters uh, impact federal infrastructure. Yeah, I think that the reason I'm intrigued by this is in the response to coronavirus, I still see um, some environmentalists that are sort of are almost almost woeful about the idea that they're not going to be able to pass their agenda in this climate. And I'm thinking there's this side of the equation as well. Right. And so instead of imposing more obligations that are going to slow a recovery, we know that there's likely to be infrastructure investment. And so. Why not sort of look to this side and say, okay, if we're going to be rebuilding, let's rebuild smart. Is that is that fair to say that's sort of part of the objective? Obviously, it goes oh, back before this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is absolutely the objective. Um, and that, like you know, mitigation is is a pretty cost effective use of funds. You know, you you you're going to end up spending on on repetitive losses. You know, several multiples what you would spend uh, just removing the risk or addressing the risk in the first place. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big part of it. Well, so I, I have something non-insurance related if, if, uh, sure. so I'm going to say something, uh, controversial now. Uh-huh. Oh no. Yes. Okay. So one of the, so one of the sad, uh, elements of the recent outbreak is that there have been a number of uh, famous people who have died, right? Yeah. Uh, in particular, a number of musicians. So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, the, the front man for uh, Fountains of Wayne, yeah. uh, uh, for example, uh, who was actually, he, he's a little bit anomalous in that he was only, I think, 50-something, so he was a yeah. little late. Some of, the, some of the folks have been uh, up there in years. Yeah. Of all the people that I have seen who have died, uh, the person who has gotten kind of the most attention yeah. uh, and probably by a factor of, you know, 10 to one over anybody else is this yeah. guy, John Prime. Uh-huh. Right? 
Yeah. And uh, I have to confess, I do not know who John Prine is. <laughs> you, should. you poor thing. You should, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I do know who the fountain. I have heard of Fountain of Fountains of Wayne, right? Um, yeah. You know, they did Stacy's mom and uh, the theme to that thing you do. So yeah. I'm not totally out of it, but it just seemed kind of weird because ev- like everybody seemed to know who he was, mm-hmm. and then also, you know, just just uh, uh, assume that every everybody knows who he is, and you know, mm-hmm. I know, I know some people in music, but I, I'm not familiar with him. So first off, who is John Prine and, and what did he do that uh, was so amazing? So I can start by saying John Prine, among other things, was my neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is why I'm asking you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, John Prine. Uh, I lived, uh, when I first moved to Florida, I lived in a uh, little town that's right next to St. Pete called Gulfport. Uh, it's about 12,000 residents or so um it it fancies itself kind of a little austin or a little it it you know sells t-shirts with the keep gulfport weird slogan so not terribly original but a lot of uh, old hippies and so forth living there it used to be back in the day a redneck fishing village <laughs> it is now um very lgbt and and uh you know uh, uh pretty 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 dense with people who like um, say the Grateful Dead or or their ilk, but among the residents of Gulfport, at least half the year uh, was John Prine, um, who who spent the other half of the year in Nashville every year. So he's a he's a country folk pop uh, artist. Uh, it's been it was was a mailman in Chicago, uh, who was actually the first thing ever written about him was by Roger Ebert in the Chicago Sun Times in the late sixties who just happened to walk into a coffee shop where he saw this guy performing and talked about how great he was. Uh, and then he was sort of discovered by Chris Christopherson, um, who, uh, set him, set him up with a record label. Um, his first album, John Prine, self-titled, uh, about 1971. Definitely. If I, if you're going to start somewhere, start there. It is one of the great albums of all time. He continued to be, you know, a, a prolific performer up until I think his last album was only like two years ago. It was still pretty darn good. So uh, if you're going to start anywhere, I, I, my recommendations would be the two songs uh, I think are, are his greatest accomplishments are Angel from Montgomery, which was later uh, covered by Bonnie Raitt and was a country hit in the late 70s. And uh, Paradise, which is just a, you know, fantastic uh, kind of bleak uh, look at the world um judge he he just knew how to turn a phrase uh, uh there's, there's a line that that always slays me from one of his songs is uh daddy has a hole in his arm where the money goes um yeah yeah so anyway yeah doug what do you think of john prime oh john, yeah he's one of my favorite songwriters um and actually one of my Favorite lines is a line he didn't actually write, yeah. but in one of his live recordings, he tells a story of a young fan approaching him and saying, hey, I really like that happy enchilada song. Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I don't think I've ever written a song about a happy enchilada. Yeah. And, and then she, she starts singing it to him. And the line was actually, it's a half an inch of water, but you think you're going to die. And so even around our house, we always talk about having a happy enchilada. So it was sort of an accidental <laughs> phrase. 
Uh, and there's always, of course, he co-wrote with uh, Steve Goodman, one of the great all-time country songs, uh, uh, made most famous by David Allen Coe. Uh, he never even called me by my name, um, which which has uh, a little interlude in the middle where David Allen Coe is describing how, you know, he, when he got this song, he thought it was a perfect country western song, and uh, and his wife told him, no, it's not the perfect country western song because there's nothing about mama or trucks <laughs> or getting drunk, and and so they wrote another verse that was, <laughs> I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. <laughs> so okay, I have I have heard that song. <laughs> I do know I do know David Allen Coe. Um, uh, fantastic! I hope that uh, if you ever have a happy enchilada, it will not make you feel like you're going to die later. That's the way that the world goes round. You're up one day, the next you die. 